We're in uh, James chapter 5, verse 7. And if you're following, it'll be the last time we do this little pinwheel that I gave you. We're down here at patience, followed by prayer, and then a very brief focus on restoration. You'll notice in verse 7, and you'll notice in verse 8, the word patient appears three times. Be patient, using the farmer's illustration, being patient, verse 8, be patient. So that's obviously the point of this paragraph, starting in verse 7, going through verse 12, actually verse 11. Verse 12 is uh, fits with that, but I'll talk about that separately. Now, as we get into this, there are two things I want to say in terms of context. First of all, as I commented last week when we looked at the first six verses of chapter 5, there is no brothers and sisters introducing chapter 5, verse 1. And I concluded, and that's not original with me, most expositors believe that the rich whom he's addressing are unbelievers. However, you'll notice in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. So now he is addressing believers, and almost everyone believes that these verses 7 through 11 are addressing the people whom the rich are persecuting, exploiting, and oppressing. So what James is counseling is how do you respond to that? And the key to the response is the word patience. Be patient. Now, the problem with that word in English, especially in America, is when we use the word patient, we are talking about the virtue of waiting in line. That's supposed to draw a little bit of a smile. One of you smiling, so the rest of you don't get it. But patience is, you know, I have patience to wait in line. I have patience when, you know, there's a long line and I'm driving. There's a red light and I'm the 94th car in the line. I need patience. Actually, that has nothing to do with the meaning of this Greek word. The idea of patience in the original word, it is, I think, I'm not sure I didn't check this. I should have. The old King James may have translated this long-suffering. If it was translated long-suffering, that's a better way of capturing the idea of patience. It's long-suffering. Another way of perhaps getting our arms around that in terms of the meaning of the word is a forbearance, is a perseverance, is an endurance, is a hanging in there. You follow me? So that's, it isn't patient like waiting in a long line or patient waiting in a long line of cars. It's a long-suffering endurance. And the reason is given in the verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. So in other words, with what James is counseling here, be patient until the coming of the Lord, brothers and sisters, There is a reason, there's an end, there's a purpose, there's a fulfillment. This patience, this long-suffering, this endurance is framed around a promise that Jesus made. I'm coming back for you until the coming of the Lord. And, I mean, I don't think I need to explain what he means by the coming of the Lord. I think everybody understands what that means. But that's one of the major, major thrusts in the New Testament. It is everywhere in the New Testament. A future promise of God should affect present behavior. I'll say that again. A future promise of God should affect present behavior. 
because Jesus said, I'm coming back for you. That's in effect how we live. And here James is bringing up an important point. Be patient, long-suffering, enduring, persevering. Now, that's not a hard idea to get across. I mean, I don't think it needs a lot of explanation, but James feels the necessity to use an illustration. Continue in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient, there's our word about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. I don't think I need to explain that. We live in an agricultural part of the United States. Farms are everywhere around us. And you know, uh, uh, to be in the business of farming, you must have endurance, perseverance, long-suffering. Because there are so many factors. Your goal, your end is the harvest. But to get from here to there is time, lots of work, endurance, perseverance. He says, just like the farmer. So that's not hard to understand. But then he adds something. The middle of verse 8, he heightens, he heightens the counsel. He heightens the exhortation. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Some translations have stand firm for the coming of the Lord. Uh, some translations talk, use a word that, that talks about stability. But it's the same idea of forbearance, perseverance endurance. But I really like how the ESV, has, which is what I'm reading from, how the ESV has chosen to translate this and establish your hearts. I think the ESV editors are after this concept, this idea. The heart, you know, it's not that organ that pumps the blood through our body. It's a metaphor. The heart, spiritually speaking, is the center of our will the center of our spiritual will, the center of our decision-making, if you want to put it that way. And so he's just saying, establish your heart. It, it's almost like he's saying to us, decide now, right now, for, for everything ensues, before everything unfolds, establish yourself right now for the coming of the Lord is near. And then he, he's adding something. The coming of the Lord is near. The, the Greek word is egnus. I mean, it is imminent. And so you have this idea, again, which is all through the New Testament. Jesus promised he's coming back for us. Jesus did not tell us when he's coming back for us. Jesus counseled us, don't set dates. Don't try to determine precisely when I'm coming back, but always be ready. And the counsel of the New Testament in terms of prophecy is always be ready and always be faithful. That's exactly what James is doing here. A future promise of Jesus should affect present behavior. So first of all, patience. Second, establish your heart. Decide now, beforehand, that you are going to hang in there because Jesus' return is near. And remember, this was written 2,000 years ago. So it was near when James wrote this epistle. It is even nearer, is that a word? It's even nearer for us. Each day it gets closer. And so, I mean, this is, this is just a marvelous counsel. And it's, it's the kind of counsel that I've said it now three times. You see this all over the New Testament. 
The future promises of the Lord should affect present behavior. And in the context of these dear people in the first century are being oppressed and exploited by these wealthy landowners and so on, be patient. It's not going to last forever because Jesus promised to come back. So hang in there. The, um, <coughs> Strong says that it's um, to per- persevere patiently and bravely in the enduring misfortunes and troubles. There you go. Yeah. That really captures the whole idea. Jim, this, this doesn't mean that we are not to, and, and this relates to the spiritual realm, but to the worldly uh, realm, we are not to simply take oppression at any cost or any price to us without responding to that <clears throat> with other worldly figures. Is that would that be true? I mean we can do it in a way that's that we keep our testimony, but a way that's clear in terms of opposing what might be presented by other <clears throat> secular people, people of of the earth. Well, that's certainly true. That deals with another virtue of the Christian life, which is justice. Justice is a very important virtue for the Christian. Uh, James is talking to a group of people who lived in a virtual totalitarian society where they had, you talk, if you were not a Roman citizen, you had no rights. You had no liberties. If you're a Roman citizen, you did have codified rights that Rome had established. But still, it's not anything like today. So if you have an opportunity to deal with injustice without you know, violent reaction and, and so on, you, you have that responsibility to do that. And that's, of course, what the Civil Rights Movement was all about, Dr. King led. That's what the abolitionist movement dealing with slavery was all about, William Wilberforce in England, the great evangelicals in the United States. But by and large, James is saying your attitude is still one of, and that was that was in Ribbentow's book on slave religion. That is exactly the position that many slaves who became Christians they could do nothing about this if they tried to do it. They were beaten. You've seen the you've seen the photographs of the backs of some of the slaves. Just horrible how they were treated. But still, their hope their hope was on the promises that Jesus made. That's James is writing to that kind of a society. All right, now, he's not done. He adds an additional virtue. In addition to patience, he says, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And and so it's kind of an interesting term, and the word that incorrectly is translated grumble. Whom does that remind you of? Who grumbled a lot in the Old Testament? The people of Israel. They're leaving Egypt. What are they doing? They're grumbling because they don't have the peanut butter, ice cream, and pizza that they enjoyed back in Egypt. That was a joke, but nobody left. And so, you know, that, that grumbling. He uses exactly the same word. If you go to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word they translate, grumble. Don't grumble. Grumble is one of those words when you hear it pronounced, you know, exactly Grumble does summarize what you really do when you grumble. And so don't grumble against each other because that groaning and grumbling in the midst of difficult circumstances is contrary to patience. Don't grumble 
against one another. Now, I know that is a foreign idea in the 21st century in the Church of Jesus Christ where we grumble at one another. We don't even know what he's talking about here. So just abstractly imagine it. That, too, is a joke. I'm hoping you got that. But he, said, he, he brings up this same idea that Jesus brings up. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, if he's writing to Christians, which he is, Jewish believers who put their faith in Christ, what does he mean by judge? So that you may not be judged for the judge standing at the door. Great white throne judgment? Or the Bama seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, where we're evaluated by Jesus how we lived our lives since we put our faith in him. It's that. It's 2 Corinthians 5.10. And so again, this is it's it's negative now, but a future promise should affect present behavior. The believer is accountable to Jesus for how we live our life after we put our faith in him. And he reminds us, as he said twice, the coming of the Lord, verse 7, the coming of the Lord, verse 8. Now he puts it, the judge is standing at the door. And so the judge would be who? Jesus. The judge is standing at the, literally in Greek, in Greek, the word is doors, not singular, it's plural, doors. And that, that very much has the idea of the doors of the hall of justice. <laughs> and so, I mean, that, that's how the old, that's how uh, the Greco-Roman world would think about that. And so that's what James does. He just consistently flushes out that figure of speech. Again, the, the imminency of Jesus returning. The, we don't know when he's coming back, but now we're, we're positively be patient. Don't grumble now negatively because the judge is coming back. He's going to evaluate how you lived your life. So he then, he then gives an example of this. He gives two examples. Verse 10. Example number one, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now remember, these are Jewish believers in the very early first century. These are Jews who have come to know Jesus as the Messiah and so on. So when he says prophets, does he have to explain that? No. Who's he thinking about? Give me some of their names. Elijah. Elijah? Isaiah. Isaiah? Jeremiah. Is it, I mean, all of, there's four major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Plus a bunch of other people that are called prophets. So you, you don't use, you don't need much imagination to know what he's talking about. And I mean, if you know, you know the story of Jeremiah, don't you? It's pretty, Jeremiah's a long <coughs> book in the Old Testament. But Jeremiah, most of his life was a life of suffering and very difficult <coughs> Excuse me. Suffering in very difficult times. And he needed that forbearance, that endurance, that patience. Did he exhibit that? Yeah. For a while he was thrown into a pit. You remember that? He was forced to go to Egypt. I mean, all of these things. You know what he's talking about. How about Isaiah? The Lord commissions him in chapter 6 of Isaiah and says, I'm sending you to Judah. Oh, and by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. 
Nobody's going to hear you, Isaiah. I don't know about you guys, but I said, Lord, I don't want to do this. Time out. Choose somebody else. But that's all he said. Lord, here I am. Send me. So you don't have any difficulty. And then he does something else, which I always find interesting. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Different Greek word than patience, hupomene, but that's the idea of an endurance. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord. And so the second illustration it brings up is Job, which I always find fascinating because throughout the New Testament, very few Times is a reference to Job. And yeah, it's a huge book. It's a major book of the Old Testament. It's one of the wisdom uh, pieces of literature in the Old Testament. But he uses Job. And again, these are Jews who have come to faith in Christ. They would know exactly how Job fits as an illustration of the argument he's making. Because Job endured horrific suffering, and yet he endured. And yet he, he, he had lots of struggles. He fired off all kinds of accusations of God. But he never gave up in his faith. He remained steadfast. And by the way, note that the virtue that James is citing is not the patience of Job. It's the steadfastness of Job. The word patience is not used in relationship to Job here. But that's a minor point. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's now come full circle. The call is the virtue of patience. Again, probably the people are being oppressed and exploited by the, the rich of the first six verses. And he says, don't grumble. Why? Both times he affirms a promise. And now he two more illustrations, the Old Testament prophets and Job. Then he circles back. I want to remind you about the character of, of God. What is the character of God? And James chooses two terms that are translated compassionate and merciful, but both terms are rare Greek terms. As a matter of fact, the term compassionate, the way it's translated compassionate, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it's some expositors argue that James actually coined the term that's translated compassion. Some translations have how the Lord is full of pity. ESV has chosen to translate it compassionate. But maybe the idea full of pity is a good translation capturing the idea of this virtue of God. Remember something about our God. He knows what you're going through. He knows the difficulties you're going through, and he gives you enabling grace to be patient. Remember his character. He's full of pity. Now, the problem with that is when you and I think of pity in the 21st century, I'm not sure we think of that as much as we should, but we think of that as a virtue. If you pity somebody, what is the idea of pity? What does the idea of pity mean? What, what does the idea of, conjure, of pity conjure up in your mind? If you are feeling, if you're full of pity for someone. Empathy and understanding. 
Okay, I like that word empathy. Because the idea of pity very much has in back of it the aspect of empathy. And Fred, since you used it, what does empathy mean? Pity. Yeah, what does empathy mean? It's identifying with that person's situation and and understanding and, and really wanting maybe to help and love that person. Yeah, it's, it, empathy is you're in their shoes. You are really with them. In Cry with them or laugh with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it's, it's, it's a wonderful concept. And that really is in back of what James is saying here about the Lord. So how can our Lord be empathetic? He's God. Remember what Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 says. In all ways, Jesus was like us, except without sin. So when you are suffering, does Jesus know what it's like to suffer? You bet he does. If you're experiencing loneliness, does Jesus know what it's like to be lonely? Yes. If you're betrayed by a close friend, does Jesus know what it's like to be betrayed? Yes. So that's why when James uses this term that ESV translate compassionate or other translations translate full of pity, it very much has that idea. Our Lord knows what it's like. And when he feels it's an emotion, God is an emotional God, when he feels the emotion of pity or compassion or empathy, bank on it, he does. That's what disturbs me so much about other world religions. Their God is not like the God of biblical Christianity. Allah does not know what it's like to be a human. Allah does not have pity and compassion. And so I'm just using that as an illustration. So that, that's powerful when it comes to genuine biblical Christianity. And I, I think I've mentioned that before, but all of you, I'm sure, at one time or another might have sung. There's an old hymn of the church that says, no one understands like Jesus. That's really true. So that's, that's getting at what James is really saying here. And then that word merciful, again, it's, it's an unusual word. It's not the normal word for mercy. But the idea of mercy, that God is also merciful. <clears throat> Very much the idea of not giving people what they deserve. That's of God's mercy, which we all have exhibited to one degree or another in our dealing with our children, for example, or close friends. Excuse me, Cliff. In, and it could be my lack of uh, English training, but to me, pity is a negative term. That's what I, I meant. Yeah. It, okay, growing up. I yeah. mercy, pity would not be a term I would ever use. I think that's one of the reasons why ESV has chosen not to translate it pity, okay. translate compassion, because in our world today, pity is a negative, okay. a negative word. It carries a negative connotation to it. I don't think it should, unfortunately, but that is definitely what 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 we would say accurately and correctly today. So I mean, it's it's wonderful to really translate compassion. Or even better, empathy, as Fred mentioned a moment ago. All right, now, I don't think this is hard, but I want you to notice verse 12, because this doesn't, it almost doesn't seem to fit 
It, it really doesn't. But he adds, but above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Now, this isn't profanity in, in the way you may think of the word swear as a profanity. It's taking a vow or taking an oath. So you mean do not swear as an oath or a vow, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, you might recognize that, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Jesus said that. Jesus said that in Matthew, the full account of that is Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 through 37, when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is talking about taking an oath or making a vow. So in, in this context, it's, first it seems as if it doesn't fit. But if we're called to, using the way we've defined all this, if we're called to patience and endurance and persistence and perseverance without grumbling and so on, the context is in acts of adversity, when you're being exploited and oppressed, be careful what you say. If you have to go in a court, be careful the kind of vow you make. Because you should be such a person of integrity that when you say yes, everyone knows you mean yes. Because you see, in first century Judaism, particularly among the Pharisees, particularly, they had constructed an elaborate series of levels of vows. And if you swear by something on earth, that's not as valid as if you swear by God. Do you know what I'm saying? If I swear by this chair, which is ridiculous, but I use that. If I swear by this chair, that's not as obligatory for me as if I swear by God or put my hand on the Bible or say, so help me God or whatever. James says, was Jesus, his brother, trying to get away from this. Don't construct levels or tiers of vows and oaths. Just be a person of integrity. You know, did you ever hear... You know, somebody tells a story or makes a statement, and you 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 respond respond to skepticism. I, I I don't know if I believe it. I swear this is true. I swear in a stack of Bibles that this is true. What are they trying to do? Convince you what they said is true. James and his brother Jesus are saying you shouldn't have to swear by a whole bunch of things. Just be a person of integrity. So that everyone knows when Ed says something, he's such a guy of integrity. I believe him. He doesn't have to swear on a stack of Bibles. I believe Fred. Fred, Fred, Ed, all the Eds here. I, I, you know, be those kinds of guys that your yes is yes and your no is no. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. That's what his brother James is saying here. So in these times of oppression and adversity and difficulty, maintain your integrity. And a mark of that is this vow and oath aspect that was so common in the first century. Got it? Yep. Now before James ends his book, he brings up on our little pinwheel here, 
in a matter of prayer. <clears throat> but he does it through a series of rhetorical questions. This is kind of an unusual, an unusual style of James. He doesn't usually do it this way. But he brings up this matter of prayer with three questions. Is any among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? So what James brings up are three circumstances of life, all of which demand the response of prayer. Maybe I should, I, I, that's too strong. I shouldn't say demand a response. But call for, give an opportunity for you to talk to God, which is what prayer is. Rosalind Rinker defers, defines prayer as a dialogue between two people who love one another. I like that definition. So James is saying, here are three opportunities for you to talk to God. First opportunity is anyone suffering? <clears throat> this is not the typical New Testament word for suffering. It's katakotheia. It can be translated trouble. The focus of the term is on the emotional distress that comes with the difficulties of life. Could be sickness, could be an accident, could be a financial trauma or whatever. Are any of you experiencing trouble such that you are experiencing emotional distress? I just fleshed out the whole meaning of that term. I don't have to explain that, do I? Already through this day, I don't know about you, but I have a trouble list. It's got about 114 things on it, things I'm currently troubled with and worrying about. I'm exaggerating a little bit. I'm being funny. But you don't have any difficulty understanding what James is talking about. Second, it's like he goes to the opposite end. Anyone cheerful? ESV translates it cheerful. You could, it's euthymeo. You could translate any among you happy. In Acts 27, verse 22, it's used of Paul cheering up the sailors as they're about to shipwreck outside of Malta. Do you remember that? Well, okay, maybe you don't remember that. But Paul is on a ship in the Mediterranean. There's a terrible storm. They're about to shipwreck. And Paul's using the word to be cheerful, be happy, because the Lord's in control. Nobody's going to die with us. Nobody's going to kill. Will you trust me with this? Everybody says, no, you're crazy. He says, no, I'm telling you, none of you is going to die. So be cheerful and happy. Trust the Lord in this. Same word. So in the midst of lots of churning difficulties, any of you cheerful, happy? That inner attitude of cheerfulness? James already answered, let him sing praise. Sing praise to the Lord. Then the third reason, maybe I should say circumstance, to talk to God is any 
among you sick. The word here for sick is asthene. It's not the normal word for physical illness. Now, it can mean that, but the focus of asthene, sick, is the weakness, the mental, moral, and spiritual weakness that comes with an illness. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm maybe dicing things pretty, pretty uh, thinly for you guys, but I, I believe it's very important for us to try to come to terms with what these Greek words mean. Can you say that again? Can you yeah, asthenae is not the normal word used for physical sickness. The focus of this word is on the mental, moral, and spiritual aspects, weakness, of dealing with a physical uh, illness. So it's focusing on the mental, moral, and spiritual results of dealing with a physical illness. And I, I, I can't imagine that you all are older than me, so you know what I'm talking about. Actually, I'm the oldest one in this room. But anyway, you've, you've, you've been around people who are ill. You've been around, whether it's young people, middle-aged, or older people, with physical illness comes Mental, moral, and spiritual weakness. That's why we go visit people in the hospital. That's why we go visit people in their homes to encourage them, edify them, build them up, to deal with the asthene of the physical illness. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the word he's using here. So if that is the case, what does James counsel? Call... For the elders of the church. Now, please note, you invite the elders to come to your home. Let them pray over you and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you are inviting the elders to come and to pray. And, and the language there in Greek is very clear, over him. The idea is the person lying flat in a bed, difficult type situation and anoint with oil. The Greek word there is not ceremonially anoint. That's creo. It's a different word. It has very much the medicinal aspect. It's a medicinal word. Do you understand what I mean? It's a medicine word, a word of medicine. So some have gone wild with this. I'm not sure it's necessary to do that. <clears throat> But it, it, it's not the normal word for anointing. We're anointing someone ceremonially with oil, like they did. That's not the word that's used here. It's a different word. So the idea just seems to be that you call for the elders. They pray over you, and either medicinally or just helpfully to exemplify and manifest the presence of God, they anoint you with oil, leaving the results to the Lord. But the whole idea is you take the initiative to call the elders. And the idea is very, very, you, you need, you need people to encourage and edify and build you up. And the best group of people to do that are the leaders of your church. If you're in a particularly difficult situation, what does he say? I want you to be encouraged by this. This is James speaking now. I want you to be encouraged by this. 
The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. <clears throat> the prayer of faith. And the word save there is, does not mean justification. That's not what it means. You could translate that deliver the one. Who is sick? And the, the Greek word there for sick is not the same word for sick in verse 14. It's calm though. It's a different word. Raise him up. Restore him. So what's James saying? The prayer of faith will cause the Lord to respond. Is this a guarantee? Are we to take from verse 15 a guarantee that the Lord will always heal a physical ailment? No. Because raise him up can also apply to the ultimate glorification of our salvation when we receive our resurrected, glorified body. I mean, this is hard because every one of us, when I've, I've been in leadership in the church for a long time, I've been in many situations where the ill person or the family has called us to come to the home and you pray over that person. And even at times we've used and anointed with oil and so on. Sometimes God has restored that person and brought healing. Sometimes he hasn't. So the promise is God hears the prayer and God will answer the prayer. Either immediately or at the end. He will raise him up. That's the only way to process this, yeah, it seems to me. Yesterday I, I called a friend that I've known from high school. And uh, Rick wasn't there, but Penny, his wife, was. And um, so I, I asked her how she was doing. And to help, <laughs> sorry. She said, I just, uh, want to see. Sometimes they're very important in times of encouragement and edification for them and also for ourselves in some ways as we go through this. All right. It's interesting as we bring this to a conclusion, James brings in another element here. Three circumstances to talk to the Lord. If you're suffering, if you're cheerful, happy, 
inner attitude of happiness, or if you're sick, asane or kamno. Asane, the weakness that goes with kamno to physical. There's two aspects of sickness. But he brings something else up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why does James bring this in? He wouldn't have to do this. He wouldn't have to bring in the matter of sin. But men, because he brings this in, we can't ignore it. So I'm going to try to explain why I think he brings this in. And hopefully it's going to make sense because it's in the whole context of the New Testament. Sometimes sickness is a result of God's discipline in a believer's life. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, Paul talks about this. A people, group of people in the Corinthian church to whom Paul is writing this letter are abusing the Lord's table. And in the details of chapter 11, all the things that they were doing are explained. And Paul says, because of this, some of you are weak, asthene. Some of you are sick, kamno. And some of you sleep. And that metaphor in the New Testament is always used of death. So, James is bringing that into this discussion. Sometimes, not always, this is, this, this is wrong to say this. That just because you're, there's a sin you don't know about, you've got to deal with it. That's the wrong Don't go to a hospital bed with that message. James is just saying, but you can't ignore this. So, confess your sins. If you've committed sin. To be forgiven. This is First John one nine. This isn't. This doesn't have. This isn't judicial forgiveness. This is the relational forgiveness in our walk with the Lord. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another and may be healed. Part of our obligation as as people who love the Lord and love our people is to pray for people in that context, whether you verbally say that to them or not. But Lord, if if this is if this is a situation where your discipline is being meted out, Lord, help that person to confess their sin so that they can be restored to relationship with you. And then James says, you know what? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Prayer is a powerful tool we have. It's a powerful tool we have to help people to encourage and edify and build up people. But it also can be a powerful tool to help people to deal with their sin. And that's what James is saying. Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And the best example you can think of in the Old Testament is, well, he chooses one out of about 600 you could have chosen. Elijah. Takes you all the way back to 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, chapter 18. King Ahab, whose wife is Jezebel, 
who has brought Baal worship into the northern kingdom. And God uses Elijah, who prays fervently that it would not rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and it rained. All James is doing, <clears throat> excuse me, all James is doing is grabbing, again, these are Jewish people who've come to know Christ and so on. They know exactly that. He grabs Elijah out of the Old Testament and says, remember him? Remember his fervent prayers of a righteous man? As God's emissary, he prayed it would not rain as judgment on the northern kingdom, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He's up on Mount Carmel and prays again, and it rains. Remember that? There's a cloud over there about the size of a man's hand. It's coming off the Mediterranean. As it gets closer and closer, it becomes, bigger, it becomes a tremendous storm. I've stood there many, many times. When you're standing on Mount Carmel, you can just about see the Mediterranean, and you see it coming. I've never seen a storm come, thank the Lord. The only time I ever had a storm in Israel was when it, we were on the Sea of Galilee. We quick headed for shore, so that was the only time I ever. All right, now, I hope I didn't either confuse you or make you angry or frustrated perhaps about how I dealt with the issue of prayer in verse 13 through 18. It's, it's got lots of layers to it. Three circumstances to pray. The importance of, in the context of someone that's astane, ask the leaders to come and pray. And then he adds in the element of sin. Perhaps that needs to be a part of the ministry. And the prayer of righteous people always is effectual when it comes to God. Example, Elijah. And I think that's, that's obvious. Okay, online or here in the room, everybody with me? Any questions you want to ask or comments? So the, the Lord will raise him up. Yes. Either return him to life so he can continue glorifying God, or he'll bring him home. Yes, and the ultimate glorification, absolutely. Okay? We are going to do it. We are going to finish the book because verse 18, excuse me, verse 19 and verse 20, there's no conclusion to the book, no benedictions of the book. No, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, as Paul often writes. Multitude of sins, bang, the book is over. The letter ends. Very abrupt, typical James. So I called this in the pinwheel restoration. Maybe it spins off of his discussion that we just read about confessing your sins. Brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, the Greek word for wonder is planeo. We get our word planet from that. Because in the Greco-Roman world, they would look at the sky at night and they would see the moon. And they would see the stars, which are very predictable, as you know, they, they too move. But they would see the stars. But every now and then they'd see these objects that go like this. 
in the night sky over time. They called them the wandering ones, the planets. Because I'm, I, I'm sure you know this, if nothing from just high school and you had a little bit of that in high school. The planets don't follow a normal pattern in the night sky if you watch it over time. Mars and Venus, depends on the time of the year, you can see them in the sky, but they're in different positions because they're wandering all over the place. Because like Earth, they're going around the sun. And they, anyway, you know all that. So James chooses to use that word. If any among you wander from the truth, the truth about what? Well, the gospel, who Jesus is, his promises. Let's, let's, let's just take truth to mean that summation of what it means to be a Christian, what you believe, the Christian faith. If anyone wanders from that, And someone brings him back, restores. James, excuse me, Paul talks about this in, in Galatians 6.1. We studied that a number of months ago. You who are spiritual, bring that person back. Seek to restore that person. James is saying the same thing here. Brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. I believe will save his soul from death. Remember, this is talking about a believer who wanders. That's the, that's the discipline of God. That's the first Corinthians 11.30 illustration. That's the, what First John talks about, that sin unto death. It's that a believer who so defiantly rejects the truth, rejects what God is doing, that person is a candidate for God's discipline. James says to restore a person is to save him, deliver him from God's discipline. And second, this marvelous promise will cover a multitude of sin. Didn't Jesus do that with his disciples when they erred? Correct them gently. The best example, that's Peter, isn't it? He denied Jesus three times, and on the North Shore Sea of Galilee, Jesus says, let's take a walk, Peter. And he restores Peter by asking him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And it's exactly, it's, this is what he's talking about. It's this relationship with the living God. And our responsibility, Paul says this in Galatians 6.1, our responsibility to bring that wandering one back. It's the same theme that's in Luke 15. The lost prodigal son. Is the lost prodigal son restored to the relationship with his dad? Of course he is. Of course he is. God's arms are always open. God's arms are always open to his child to come back. We talked about James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, the way back, those 10 aorist imperatives. If we're not as close to God as we used to be, guess who moved? Seek to be restored to your relationship with God. And James is just putting that responsibility on other believers. You have that responsibility to help bring the wandering ones back. So often, 
and I mean, it, it can happen so many times in families. One of the, your children goes off the track for a while. You know, whatever the circumstances might be, whatever the specifics might be. You're the parent. You're the loving father. In this case, we're all men. You, you, you want to do everything you can to restore your child to a relationship with the Lord. Prayer, keeping the communication lines open, et cetera, et cetera. And you watch God do miraculous things. Good friends that you've come to know over time in your life. And you watch them make some very unwise decisions and, and break that relationship with the Lord. You want them to come back. They're wandering ones. You want them to come back. Maybe you'll be the one. When we go back to Pennsylvania this next week, one of my nephews has done some things that he's broken relationship with his mom, and his mom wants me to talk to him. I'm looking forward to that as much as if it were leprosy, you know. But I've been praying about it now for a while. Peggy and I were talking about it this morning again after we got up. And just ask that, Lord, if you want this to happen, you have to set up the circumstances. It has to be absolutely certain to me that I should bring this up. But he's a wandering one. He's a planeo one. He really is. He knows the Lord. Every time I've been back there, I always sit down and talk with him about the Lord. Now, this guy, this guy has broken his relationship with his mom over an issue that's absolutely ridiculous. She wants me to try to facilitate reconciliation. I live 1,500 miles away, but it's he knows me. He trusts me, so that's what she – but the goal of that, I don't want to hammer the guy over the head. The goal is you need to be a responsible son and be reconciled to your mother. Her, his father's passed away. So anyway, that's James Ends' book. That's it. What an important responsibility we have to bring wandering ones back. Well, men, we did it. Praise be to the Lord. We have finished another book. We pray for this uh, time together, Lord. Thank you for the book of James and Galatians that we studied together. James is a very convicting book in so many ways. Thank you for his exhortation about prayer, as well as his challenge to be men who are concerned about restoring those who have wandered from the faith. Help us to be men who affect reconciliation, men of strong faith, committed to you and committed to serving others. Help us to be men who exhibit compassion and mercy, love and grace to others. May we represent you well. So be with these men. Dismiss us now with your blessing. We look forward to seeing them in two weeks, and we trust this time to you in your son's name. Amen.